We're in uh, John, John chapter 15, and it's the fourth part on, of, a, of a series on John chapter 15. And it's the metaphor, the parable that Jesus uses of the vine and the branches. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of read the whole thing again, get the context, and then we're going to look at just two verses kind of on the back end of this whole chunk. But just try and track again with the simplicity of, of what Jesus is trying to say to, to pull all the threads together and kind of give this comprehensive metaphor uh, that, that really ties with nature and what we see with the cycles and, and with uh, growth and things like that. And, and he's pulling it all together and we just want to pick up that context and see where we fit into it. So in John chapter 15, we'll start reading in verse 1. And it says this, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. I want to stop real quick. If Jesus is the vine, God is the gardener, the next thought Jesus gives us is that God is an active gardener. He is involved in a process, and he's involved with a purpose. There's a telos, there's a goal, there's an end in mind. This gardener is working with this vine. He's actively working with this vine for a purpose. So every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He's talking to his disciples, remember. And he says this, now remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Again, if you're gardening, if you're working in your your yard, if you're raking up pine needles why are you doing that what's the intentionality what's the purpose what's the goal what's the end in mind and what it's doing is it's cleaning your yard and the the goal is you value productivity but things that fall off and die um, you gather up and you remove and you burn Uh, I'd never seen a burn pile until I moved to central Oregon you know so in the fall like you're driving around, like, oh, what's that smell? You know, and everyone's got their burn piles. But we actively take and remove those because they are valueless. It's not that they don't exist. It's not that they don't have identity. It's not that there's not a particular thing right there. It's that that particular thing has no value anymore to the gardener and his purposes for what he's doing with the garden. That branch has effectively removed itself from the will of the gardener. Okay. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Now if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now the verses that we got to last week are these, starting in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. 
And if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now I've told you this. And remember that phrase shows up only here. Jesus is really breaking down what he's saying in, in a very unique way. And he's, he's showing us, he's pulling back the curtain, showing us his desires, his motivation, what's really driving him. And he says this, I'm telling you these things. I'm telling you to remain in me, which necessitates obedience. Obedience somehow has something to do with this relationship being anchored and tied together and strong. I'm telling you to obey me, not just because I'm tyrannical, not because I'm a killjoy, not because I don't want you to have fun, not because I like bossing people around, not because, you know, whatever. I'm telling you to obey me so that your joy, so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete, which is revolutionary. If you weren't here last week, I mean, that verse, when I became a, a, a Christian early on, reading through the Gospel of John, revolutionized my thinking because I had always thought that lifelessness and unhappiness and frowns were over here with Christianity. And carpe diem, suck the marrow out of life, happiness, joy, fun was over here away from God. And so there's this real tension, you know, everything in me wants this, but if there really is a God, I guess I have to just kill all the desires in me, uh, listen to Uncle Sam and do my duty and just suck it up and take it. Um, and that, was, that was what I thought, you know, and you might be the same. You might have grown up in a culture that was heavy and oppressive. And Jesus talked about that like with the Pharisees. Man, you, you got these people that religion is so oppressive and so heavy and then you add stuff to their load. Like, you don't quite have it perfect enough. Let me just load up more rules and regulations and stuff to just stifle you um, and just make it more and more complex. And Jesus says, you were the shepherds, you were the ones, you were the leaders that, was, that, were, that were put here to help those sheep, to lift those burdens off, to empower them, equip them, encourage them, affirm them. And, and what are you doing? You've got it all backwards. So Jesus pivots on that same analogy about the shepherding and he says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one that actually gets it right. And I came so that they, those sheep, those, those weak creatures, so that they, so that us, that we would have life and have life to the full. Jesus came to give us life, to, to help us flourish and to grow and to develop and to become and to have joy. He cares about our joy. And what Jesus is saying is, you've got it all wrong. You think that away from God is where the cool stuff is at. Wasn't that Adam and Eve? Okay, we're over here with God. God said not to eat of that. Hmm. Okay, that was cool for like the first 10 years. I don't know how long it was. But what's behind door number one? What are we missing out on? God's trying to trick us. Like all the joy in the world is probably on the other side of that 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 line and we got to have it and then eventually like we got to have it even if it breaks our relationship with this God and then eventually it's like oh we just gotta we gotta find out and and then the forbidden fruit you get it and you realize that you traded everything for nothing um, and Jesus is saying look this this idea that that fruit and health and life and joy and happiness is away from God and that God is a tyrant over here. It is absolutely fundamentally wrong. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to steer you back to where it's at. You're going to find your life in me. I'm the one that's actually 
coming that, that came to give you life, to give you life to the full. And I'm telling you now to obey me, not, not because of some tyrannical thing, but because like at a roundabout, when you, you stop and you merge or you yield, it actually helps you out in getting where you want to go. You know, getting T-boned at an intersection doesn't really make your life better. So that sign, instead of like cursing it and thinking that it's just bossing you around, stupid red light, it's always there to oppress me, tell me what to do. Like it's, instead of doing something that silly, you know, like darn that safety guard on the lawnmower, you know, it's just telling me I can't get in there. You know, stupid, you know, I, you know it, that's not what obedience is for. Obedience is there because it's a means to an end of a right relationship. And in that right relationship, it's all going to work. And it's to your greatest joy and peace and health and, and life. And so Jesus says, I tell you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. Amazing. Revolutionary. Um, and so last week, I kind of ended with, and I read some C.S. Lewis, and, and this is the the. I mean, the, I think the hardest yet most amazing truth to grab hold of is that if we are struggling with following God versus grabbing this thing that we just think might have something great in it, but we know it's wrong, um, we don't care enough about our happiness. We don't care enough about our happiness. It's, it's not that you Christians should stop pursuing your happiness because that's selfish. It's like, no. Um, you should actually value your happiness enough to remain with God because ultimately this is where you're going to get it. Ultimately, this is where the source of life is. If you remove yourself, fall to the ground thinking that it's going to be oh so wonderful down there, ultimately the story reads like this, just like it did with Adam and Eve in the garden. God will take, because you've removed yourself from him, and he will discipline you or remove you from his purposes. If you are worthless, he will put you where worthless things go because he spends his time interacting with purposeful things, meaningful things, things that do his will, things that bring life, things that ultimately glorify him. So the crazy thing is, is we got to care more about our happiness. We've got to care more about being where life comes and remaining here, even if it means looking at some things and going, you know what, That's, it's just a mirage. It's an illusion. It's not real. It would be, I'd have to give up way too much to go play around with something so foolish, so silly, that's fleeting, that doesn't last, that feels good for a moment. And I'm not that stupid. I care about my joy too much to do something that stupid it's a powerful motivator. Why do you not um, steal at work? Why do you not talk bad about your good friends? Why do you stay faithful, some of you, to your, your spouse? You know, why do you, fidelity is an amazing thing because when you begin to realize that you have something good and you realize that momentary things would cost you everything, you already intuitively know that's not worth the trade-off. If I kill the goose that lays golden eggs to get that one extra egg, I've killed the source of all my joy and all my happiness, all my pleasure. If I damage the system and the structure, uh, what I have going on in life, for one little thing, a bite of a forbidden fruit, 
It's a, it's a stupid trade-off. And I care too much about my joy to be that stupid. You know, my thing about sin, like when I was a youth pastor, the students are told all the time, don't sin. Why? Because you're not supposed to. Because God doesn't want you to. Because God will be mad at you if you sin. You know, because it's great that all those are true, but I started telling students, like, look, don't sin. Well, why? Because it's stupid. It's stupid. And all throughout Scripture, Scripture pleads with us and reasons with us to be wiser than that, not to envy the wicked, to, to be smarter than that. It's, it's, it's hollow and it's deceptive. And so we have to kind of say, does sin tell the truth with all of its packaging? Or is God telling the truth when he says that to sin ultimately is to lose? Not lose like I'll be mad at you, but to actually lose your own joy in your own life, in your own peace, satisfaction, purpose, and meaning. God says sin is a lie. Sin says um, grab what's behind door number one. This one thing will make everything else like meaningless because it'll be such pleasure. It's cotton candy. So we have to have this simple faith that says, I'm too, I'm too smart to believe the lie of sin. I'm too smart for that. I don't want to sin because it's stupid and I trust God. That's actually what faith means, by the way. I actually trust God. I actually have faith in him that when he's telling me these things, he actually means it. All right, so here we come to the verse that kind of ties it all together and we'll put it on the screen. Maybe you'll be able to read it if it's not behind the board says this, uh, verses 14 through 16. Now, Jesus talking again, you are my friends if you do what I command. There's a, a shared value here, a relationship, a, oh, man, it's just a togetherness. If you do what I command, we're on the same page if you do what I command. And if that's the case, I no longer call you servants. I'm not just bossing you around because a servant does not know his master's business. Do this rule. Obey this thing. Why? Because I told you so. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to treat you that way. I'm trying to explain to you why these things are important, what the purposes are. A slave, a servant, does not know his master's business, but instead I have called you my friends because everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. Everything that I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. We can leave that on the board for a while. So Jesus is saying, look, I chose you. I came and picked you and put you here so that you would bear fruit, good fruit, fruit that would last, that would be honoring. And so I'm asking you to remain here. This is the whole purpose. And he treats him really interesting. He says, look, I'm not bossing you around. I'm taking you out of this two-dimensional screen, pulling you back, showing you the big picture context, because that's what friends do. They explain things. So when we're young, it's parents, it's a really interesting thing. It's a weird transactional relationship. We never understand what they're after. We just know that they tell us that we can't have things that we want. And then every once in a while, they do something nice for us. And we think it's because they feel guilty or whatever. But it's a very, it's a very limited understanding of what parents are really after. I don't understand why running out in the street is so bad. It looks fun to me. We don't understand that parents know that the 18-year-old kid down the street comes tearing around the corner in his car and, you know, we, we, you know what I'm saying? Like, 
when we're kids, we don't understand those things. Jesus is saying, a servant doesn't understand the master's will. I've called you friends. Step back with me and let me tell you God's purposes here. God's purpose is this. His purpose is that as a gardener, he is planting this vineyard and he is tending it and he's actively involved in that I'm the vine, you are the branches, your, your role here, your part in this whole thing is you're going to bear fruit and it's going to be such a wonderful thing and that's the part you play and it's ultimately to God's glory and this thing kind of goes round and round, it's this beautiful picture, this beautiful plan of what the gardener is doing with his garden trying to get fruit. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, let me just read it for you, but 1 Corinthians 9, he's talking about, as an apostle, as, as somebody that's a preacher for a living, a missionary, like, don't I, in some sense, get to enjoy some of the fruit of my labor, what I'm doing? And here's this analogy he gives, he talks about muzzling the ox, and then he goes on to say, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And he's talking about like being able to be supported in ministry. But if the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, don't they in some sense deserve the fruit of that labor? That's the whole reason they were doing it, right? By analogy, when God is a gardener, when God is a parent, when God is someone who gives life, when God is a savior, a redeemer that sends somebody to save us, to bring us back into the relationship with him, he doesn't want us estranged or lost, but back in the family. Okay, when God's doing that, does he not have the right to have that plan work and to enjoy and to take pleasure in it all going in the right way? For fruit to be born, for life to happen, for health to happen? Does the gardener not have that right? So it's really interesting because now when we step out of the screen and we come back, we're in a more, more mature position. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, talked like a child, I did childish things. But when I became a man, I put those childish things behind me. I, I have a relationship with my dad now that's very different than when I was a kid. I understand my dad's context. I understand uh, who he is, what he is, why he does what he does, what his personality is, what his values are. And I'm able to understand my dad from this per perspective. It's, it's a very mature perspective. I don't still go to my dad and, and act like a child and see it just one way that you are here purely for my benefit. And, and I don't understand any of your wants, needs, desires, purposes. I just understand that you're Santa Claus and, and I'm the kid. Please take care of me. There's a point in our understanding of the faith where we have to step out of childish things and put immature ways of thinking behind us and we become more mature. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, you're no longer called servants. You're not just following somebody in authority and I'm telling you as someone in authority what to do. I've now come and I've brought you out and I've, I've shown you the board and I'm reasoning with you. I'm explaining why there are these rules, why, why there are these commands, why God cares about what he cares about, why it's important that you do certain things, that you remain in me, why love matters. And I'm showing you this as friends so that you can get the context. 
Um, and so it's, it's amazing. And we, we're able to stand back and look at this today. You know that? This is what God cares about. This is what God is doing. If we're over here, we, we interact with God as a child. We pray like children. We, we desire things from God like children. When we step back and we understand with more maturity who our God is, what our God is about, we pray different. We ask for different things. So here's the deal. Um, what do you think we ask for? What do you think we pray for if this is what God is doing? We ask for things that will be pleasing to him. When my kids ask for something, you know I love this phrase. By the way, I think all parents and all adults should use this phrase more often. When somebody says, thank you, uh, there's, a, there's an old-fashioned phrase, my pleasure. My pleasure. What does that mean? It means that, look, in giving to you, it actually pleased me. I didn't do it begrudgingly. I didn't do it with a bad attitude. I didn't do it grumbling and thinking, what a lousy person you are. Like, I gave to you, and it pleased me. I had pleasure in giving to you. Do you understand what I'm talking about? So when kids are like, thank you, it was my pleasure. And then every once in a while I'll explain to them, do you understand when I bought dinner for the family tonight, when, I, when, I, when you said thank you, it, it wasn't just I did my duty as a dad to put food in your belly. Like, no, taking you guys to dinner was my pleasure, meaning it made me happy. I delighted in it. There's nothing I wanted more than to spend that time with the family together, enjoying each other. It was my pleasure. Okay, When we ask God things that have to do with his purpose, his plan, you know what God loves to say? Not the God that frowns, but the real God, the relational God, the God that cares, the God that, that, that is a dad in all the, the healthy ways of being a dad. You know what God loves to say? It's my pleasure. It pleases me to do this for you, to give this to you. So Jesus twice says in the passages we read, if we are doing this, if we're remaining in him, if we're obeying his commands, you ask whatever you want and God will give it to you in my name. You know what? God's going to say, my pleasure. There, was, there were kids, uh, arrogant kids. I mean, when I was a youth pastor, there's always the arrogant rebel kid. And they totally will disrupt everything and, and try and thwart everything you're trying to do. And then they, they'll still have the arrogance. I love some of these kids, by the way, because they're a lot of fun. Um, but they're, they're arrogant enough, rebellious enough that after like trying to destroy everything, they'll come up to you and be like, hey man, can you give me blah, blah, blah. You know, and they, they like want you to give them something. And you're like, no. Um, I don't have time to go into it all because I mean, we're going to be limited on time at some point. But there's a lot of fun psychological things going on here, but you don't affirm unhealth. Affirmation is directional. Praise is directional. Meeting somebody's needs or requests is directional. Do you understand what I mean by that? When my kids do a great job drawing and I say, oh, that's such a beautiful drawing. I'm telling them, do more of that. That's good. You're, you're getting it. 
putting your heart into something, trying to bring about beauty and create something, and you're making this for somebody else because it's better to give than receive, that's good. And I praise that and I affirm that because I want to deepen that rut because it's directional. Okay, the kid, if those of you that are school teachers, the kid that's always talking out and says, can I chew 10 pieces of gum at once in class? You don't say, yes, because I want to praise you and I want to affirm you and I want to give you speed and, and God's speed in that direction that you're going. Um, be more rebellious and, and do more silly things that only have to do with you and that nobody else benefits from. Let me, let me, let me affirm and encourage that. We don't. We might be very polite in saying no because we're not trying to punish the person or hurt the person, but we just, we, we have a boundary there and we say, look, I can't in good conscience affirm that. I can't bless that because ultimately the fruit of that is bad fruit. It's not good fruit. Okay. God hears prayers. I mean, I saw the movie Bruce Almighty, and I saw how many prayers came in. You know what I mean? Like, God hears tons of prayers. And when we pray, God, please, I need this to be able to stand fast. I need this to be able to bear fruit, to be a witness to who you are, to bear the kind of fruit that's going to bring you glory, deep, lasting fruit. I need this just to sustain through this day. Because I just, every time I get alone, my thoughts go back to my depression or my trials. And I can't survive it. You've got to sustain me. Don't let the people that know me and that know that you're my God see that, that I can't, in some sense, have a foundation that holds me up even in the darkest of times. God, sustain me. God, give me. God, open up the door. God, give me a gift. You know what's crazy about spiritual gifts? is that they're gifts. You know what, what is amazing about gifts? Is they're usually asked for. I know this. That's why I always make out a Christmas list. Like even now I'm, I'm 37, I still, you can ask my parents, like sometime in November, my whole family gets a list. I'm very businesslike about it. It's a business deal for me. Free stuff's coming. It can either be stuff I want or like, Maybe stupid stuff, right? So I make a list, and then I even try and twist Tamara's arm because she's kind of like, whoa, like my family's not like that. I'm like, oh, just send it to them, you know? Like <laughs> they need to know. Um, gifts are amazing because they're given things. And usually when, when someone's giving gifts, we kind of begin to say, hey, this would help. Okay, we treat spiritual gifts in the, in, in the conservative circles so much like talents, innate things that you were born with. And you know what? Those are gifts. God gave you those. You didn't create your own talents. But God also knows that there are seasons in your life where if you have a certain gift, a particular gift for that season, you're going to be able to bear fruit that you wouldn't have been able to bear had you not had that gift in that season. You want to know what would be a gift that's not natural to me, but if I had it, it would be pretty cool every now and then? The gift of patience, right? I'm, I'm dead serious. Like, what is something that you don't have or if you had more of? If God granted that to you in a supernatural way, you would be able to bring him glory in a way that you wouldn't without that gift. We gotta pray more for gifts. God, give me this ability that I might bear fruit and give you glory. 
I'm super charged up about what's going on, but I'm limited. I'm weak. I'm, I, don't, I don't have much. God, would you help me? Jesus says, whatever you ask for in my name, God will give you. And God will be up there and he'll be smiling and saying, you finally get it. You're, you're working for my kingdom and you understand that you can't do it in and of yourself and you're looking for me to help. What a wonderful way for us to work. I love this. Like all you dads out there, like if you have grown kids, you should help them with their taxes, you know? You finally realize, like, I can help you with stuff. Like, we can do it together. I'm just kidding. I'm actually trying to get my dad to do my taxes. Um, (laughs) But you understand what's going on here. When we get it right, when our, when our, our thoughts and our desires and our prayer requests and our wants begin to shape to this picture, God's up there, and, and it's like when we finally take the training wheels off the bike and God's saying, boy, I can say yes to these prayers. Yes, 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 yes. It pleases me to affirm you, to, to bless and honor you and to give to you in what you're trying to do because what you're doing is right. But when we're two-dimensional down here and we're weak and we're frail and we're acting like kids and praying like kids, it's just, let me start my day by praying, which means make a list of everything that's not the way I'd want it to be, circumstantially. And then I'm going to pray through my list of everything that's not the way I want it to be. And then I'm going to sit back and wait for God to fix all those things. And then when he doesn't fix it, I'm frustrated because prayer doesn't work. This is God's will. And so here's, if if there's any one thing you take away from today, it's this. This I know with certainty. If you pursue God wholeheartedly, you will grow. It, It is so easy. It is so simple. If you pursue God, I mean, really pursue God, prioritize God, you will grow. Why, why does that not really work? I mean, it seems so simple, so why does that not just work? And here's why. Can you guys see that? It's slow. This is a metaphor of nature, and um, there's a process involved. Your character doesn't change overnight. Your relationships don't change overnight. Some of the patterns and habitual things that you've got in your life don't change overnight. Your ability to choose to be happy, uh, choose to find joy even in bad circumstances like James talks about, to see through that and, and, to, and just choose like a, a cheerful spirit, like a cheerful heart is good medicine to, to realize that and say, you know what? Like there's so much visibly I see that could make me unhappy and depressed right now. But the righteous will walk by faith, not by sight. I'm not gonna take what I see and let it dictate who I am. My identity is anchored in in Christ through faith. And I know that God is sovereign over circumstances and that he can still hold me up. And so even though it doesn't make any sense, even though it's not logical, 
I am going to walk forward with joy in my heart, looking to give, not depressed and, and totally absorbed with like my own needs. I'm going to walk by faith. Even though I can't see it, even though it's not, I know it's there because I trust God. It, I mean, those kinds of behaviors and patterns take time to develop. I mean, we, we have this garden now we do with our kids and we started some things with seed. You know, you don't go and plant that seed, walk out the next day and like, you know, I'm so, I mean, it's so obvious it'd be stupid for me to try and act it out, but I mean, you don't curse it. Like curses, there's no green bell pepper today. Like stupid seeds, you know, and stomp them and kick them and pour, pour acid like on the, the ground and I'll get you, you seeds. And, you know, this whole thing's stupid. It's worthless. Take it back to Home Depot. These don't work, you know. I mean, we, we don't expect that because we know there's a natural cycle. There's an actual time, time frame to this whole thing. And it happens in its season. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 is really fascinating. Matt preached on it. By the way, Matt and uh, Beth Fisher and Ben Edwards, are, they've been a week in southern Sudan, just went through Kigali and Rwanda, and, and today went into Congo. And you can keep praying for them and follow along on the worldreliefnext.org backslash blog. Um, remember to keep praying for them. But Matt preached on Haiti, and he used that verse, Galatians 6, 9 through 10, and it's this, you know, do not grow weary in doing good. Okay, do not grow weary in doing good because at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. When I became a Christian, my life was miserable for like nine months. I lost all my friends. I lost all the things I used to do and I didn't even know how to, I didn't even know how to have fun anymore. Like what I used to do on a Friday night, Saturday night to have fun, like I had to like find a new way of having fun. It literally... And some of you know this if you've been down the this, this same road. It literally took me, you know, six months to a year to repattern myself so that I knew how to have fun. Like going to the movies or just hanging out with a bunch of people, which initially was horrible. I was like, this really sucks. Now I love it. You know, we, as pastors and wives, we hung out last night at dinner. Like, that's heaven to me. You know what I mean? But it took a long time. Like, it didn't happen overnight. It had to happen in season, and there was a lot in me that needed to change. It's slow. When I was a youth pastor, I showed a bunch of video clips to my youth group, just little clips. It was Zorro, when, when Anthony Hopkins is teaching Zorro, like, how to sword fight. And then it was The Count of Monte Cristo, same thing. You guys remember that movie? Like, he's learning in prison how to sword fight. You know, and, and he's being taught by the old mentor in the prison how to sore fight. And I showed another movie. I forget which one it was. But I showed three of them, same kind of deal, back to back to back. And I said, okay, what'd you learn? And I wrote them on the board. I'm like, what'd you learn? Number one, they were like, well, you got to have someone to teach you how to do this. I'm like, cool, okay, you got to have a mentor. Number two, what'd you learn? Well, like, you know, da, 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 you know, number three, number five, number 10. And then they like had nothing left to say. And they're like, uh, and I'm like, what else did you learn? And they, I mean, I just drug it out, drug it out, drug it out. And, and they just couldn't come up with anything else. And I said, here's something you learned. That you can go from a bumbling idiot to the world's greatest sword fighter in two and a half minutes. You learned that. We live in a society of instant gratification. We don't know how to pursue things over time and work hard at it. And we are a part of a faith all throughout the Old Testament had this dominant theme of waiting on the Lord. In the prophets and Isaiah and things like that, it talked about God will come and we have to wait. In, in Psalms, you see the first person language of God 
in the middle of this trial, and it's hard for me to sustain. Where are you? I'm waiting on you. And this whole theme of, of waiting on the Lord, because God's working out his plans. He will do it, and we have to remain, even when it's difficult. You know, we get out into the desert like the Israelites, and we think God worked. He worked for a while, but now we're in the middle of the desert. Moses is gone for 40 days. We don't know what to do. Holy cow. Well, there's got to be something else that will save us. There's got to be something else that will work. There's got to be something else that we can, we can go serve that will get us out of this fix. And so we make the golden calf, the thing that's other than God, that's different than God, that we're going to serve or we're going to follow. And we put our faith in that. This is how I'm going to get out of the depression. This is how I'm going to fix my economic whatever. This is how I'm going to deal with these broken relationships. This is how I'm going to deal with my joylessness. This is how I'm going to deal with my worry or my fear or my health problems. And we create these different little coping mechanisms instead of saying, even in the midst of this difficulty and this stress and this waiting, I trust God. I'm not going to look to other things. God is the one who's going to save me. There is only one prayer that God will never answer. Do you guys know that there was one prayer that, that God didn't answer Jesus? He answered everything else. Jesus said, I've only done what the Father told me to say and what the Father told me to do. I've basically lived this perfect 10 life. Um, and then at the end, he prays, take this cup from me. I don't want to die. And guess what? God didn't answer that prayer. He chose his will instead. There's one prayer that God will always not answer for us. And it's the same one as Jesus's. It's, God, I don't want to die. And sooner or later, we are all going to face that. And God will not answer that prayer at some point in each one of our lives. What only matters is whether our death, like Christ's death, will count for something whether that in our dying and in our living, we're able to do God's will, know the fellowship of that, be able to bear fruit and be able to sustain ourselves through hard times because we're grounded and we're rooted and we have life coming into us and because God moves and acts on our behalf and answers our prayers. We don't have time to go into it. If you want to come up to me afterwards, I'd love to give you some verses um, on, because it's real simple. Do you want to know why your prayers don't get answered? God's, God gives, it's the age-old question, right? Even C.S. Lewis asked that, you know, why does God not answer prayers when it says that he's going to answer prayers? Well, God says in Scripture all throughout it why he doesn't answer prayers. Says it in the Old Testament, says it throughout. It's because there's something wrong with our prayer and it doesn't accord with his will. Either through our sin or through our folly or our, through our lack of caring about justice issues, which is a whole different subject, um, or asking something that he just, as a father, cannot give. And so God says why he doesn't answer prayer. And what we have to learn from that is learn how to change our prayers, change our desires, learn more mature ways of sustaining and staying in that relationship, not breaking out of it and trying to serve other things or look for salvation elsewhere. We have to grow in maturity. There's a point where we have to put childish things behind. Have you ever crossed that line in your own faith walk? Where you knowingly, I mean, deep down inside, we understand this picture. We understand that it's slow, don't we? And we get that, you know what, it's right. Even though it's slow, we know that that's right. 
but we still have trouble with this. We don't like it in our own life. We want instant gratification. But have we gotten to the point where looking at this, we understand we're friends, we see the whole picture, the whole context. Christ gives us the inside scoop and we choose to put childish things away and become a man or become a woman and have a faith that is deeper, a faith that is stronger, that has the endurance, the perseverance, and the patience. Like, like it says in James, as we endure, as we persevere, we grow and become who we are supposed to be. Let me close with this verse out of Isaiah. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 64, 4. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. No ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. God does his part. And if we really pursue God, we will grow. And so a lot of times we come to church and we're looking for like a word of prophecy or a word of revelation or a new bit of knowledge. It's like winning the lottery and that new little bit of knowledge is going to all of a sudden make it all easy and fast. But we've, we know and we have always known what's really going on. And what's really going on is it's this very simple it's about remaining in Christ and obeying him and, and finding our joy in this relationship. So the thing we need every week is not the magic bullet. And it ties back to what I was saying earlier about relationship. The thing that we need each week, the writer of Hebrews talks about it, we need encouragement. We, as, as fellow Christians who all go through this and at different times struggle and different times benefit, we all need encouragement because there's nothing extra that we need to know. We need to be able to have the strength to stay in what we know is true, what we believe to be true, and to trust and to wait on God. No eye is seen, no ear is heard. Any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Father, give us the ability to trust you sincerely and truly and to find a faith that actually believes that you are the God that fulfills his promises that if we put our faith in you, you will be faithful, that if we put our trust in you, you will prove yourself to be trustworthy. Give us the ability to wait on you in an instant culture. Let us not go seeking every which way for a new word of wisdom, some new spiritual revelation. Help us just to take truth as truth and to sit in it, to trust it, to let it slowly change us, slowly grow us, and that we would know the joy of that, of being in your will, being seated in that relationship. We know you do your part. We know that if we pursue you wholeheartedly, you will grow us. Give us that ability. In Christ's name, amen.